0: cut a film podcast by movie nerds this is andreas fabulakis i have created and run films fatale a toronto e-zine review masterclass everything website we currently are ranking every single academy award nominee so be sure to check that out
1: i'm rachel i write for films fatale as well in a world cinema column and i'm currently in the middle of the oscar slog My performance in the medieval play Quarantine Quarantine is debuting in the next few days, so watch our channel for a link.
2: James here, Friendly Neighborhood content creator. I don't write for Films so I Tell yet, but I'm definitely trying to make time yes. to eventually do that. <laughs> We're trying to get his journalistic visa going. Right, exactly. Uh, I produce and release music on the alias Booty Paul, and I am one half of the Prefer Not To Say podcast.
0: Fantastic. So this week, funnily enough, we end on you, James, because it was your topic. And I think it was such a unique topic because it really could lend itself to so many different possibilities of what one could interpret with such a question so what what did you end up deciding for uh cinephiles to to ponder about this week james
2: well i thought i would give a topic that like you said it really opened up the doors to infinite possibilities and that is films we could not believe got made yes just we just can't believe they exist It just makes no sense given whatever context you may come up with for the particular film you're talking about. Like mine is one that just logically should not have been possible to make.
0: Okay. So why don't you start things off with that then? Because I've got a couple of examples, but I'm trying to to read the room. Like if most people go serious, I've got a stupid one. If there's a stupid one, I'm going to go maybe a little bit different. So start things off. What could you not believe was even possible to make.
2: Everyone will understand when I explain it, but I picked 2013's Escape from Tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, I was actually considering that. And if you're familiar with that film, you know it is the legendary film that was shot in and around both US-based Disney parks without their knowledge or consent. Wow.
1: Right, I think I heard about this one.
0: I actually was considering that. Like That was like in the top five that I was considering. I The only reason why I didn't is because I have not seen it yet and I felt like I couldn't really talk about it enough. But I'm so glad you you brought it up. This is please explain to the listeners just how they pulled this off because it's it's such a crazy story.
2: It's really wild. So it was written directed by a guy named Randy Moore. And if I remember correctly, I think he might have been I think he worked in Hollywood as like a script rewriter or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he apparently wanted to make this movie because he has really complicated feelings in regards to the Disney parks and Reference to his relationship with his father. I don't remember all the details. I haven't read his interviews in a while, but he thought that that was something he needed to address, you know, actually find some closure on. So he came up with this idea to do this movie. And from what I've read, he ended up getting some really sizable, I don't know what to call it. Oh, it was an inheritance he got from his grandfather who passed on. And he used a good amount of that for the budget. I think the total budget was $650,000, which was uh, really impressive when people get that much money to make a movie. But the way they did it was really impressive because they got their cast and crew. They got the year round pass or whatever. Is there a year round pass?
0: Yeah, there's like a uh, I don't remember what it's called. It's like a a park hopper or something Where something like that. You can just like, yeah, do all sorts of shit.
2: But the way they pull it off was they shot it on DSLR cameras. That doesn't look suspicious because everybody brings cameras to take pictures. But little right. do they know they were actually shooting a movie there and they, you know, they were really sly about it. They kept their scripts on their phones, they communicated through text, and they pulled off getting multiple shots of multiple rides at some points. Like they would, you know, re-ride the ride to get, you know, different takes.
1: Do we know how Disney reacted?
2: Not well. <laughs> From level I remember. Well, I'm actually gonna be getting to that. So yeah, he had shot all this footage and then he ended up taking as far as going to South Korea to edit the film. Just to keep it in complete secrecy, <laughs> because nobody knew about this. It's an independent picture. It's actually like he literally made this on his own. It wasn't, you know. I don't think there's a couple production companies listed, but I don't think they're like major ones. I I wouldn't be surprised if they're, you know, ones made up for the movie specifically. But yeah, he kept it under wraps, and there was actually some shots at the end that he had to do towards the end that he had to do on green screen because you know he needed a little bit more to fill out the movie, which. Don't look great, but you know, I mean, the whole movie itself isn't amazing. But when it was revealed that this was that it actually happened and was coming out, it was premiering at Sundance, and everybody was wondering what was going to happen. I remember some writers saying, like, you know, you know, everybody's anticipating some helicopter to come down with people in black suits from Disney <laughs> and just just to shut the whole thing down. But all in all, Disney actually made a statement saying they were not going to acknowledge the film in any capacity because they didn't want to draw any attention to it. And that's the, probably they, wise. Well, they also, they actually included it on their online Disney A to Z official encyclopedia. There's actually an entry for the film, just mentioning that it was a film shot there.
0: Uh, That's it. It it was shot here. How was it? We don't need to find out.
2: But yeah, it's just a film that logically literally from a physical standpoint should not have been possible to make but they pulled it off i mean that's you know the advent of digital technology anything is possible you got these small cameras people think oh they're just taking pictures no they're shooting a full on feature film with actors and uh yeah the final result though was kind of a little bit sloppy because they had to take out any music that was playing they had to remove anything that would cause for copyright infringement they also had to Redub the entire film. Oh
1: my god! Oh wow!
2: You know there wasn't much opportunity for location sound, probably because of all the crowd noise. Yeah. And
1: did the premise have anything to do with Disney or anything like that? Yes.
2: Yes, it took place at Disney.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, for what I for what I remember, wasn't it basically like I could be wrong, like Disney imploding on itself because there was a lot of like special effects and stuff as well, like rides. A
2: lot. Yeah, yeah it like had to do again. with this family going there and, and the dad of the family. He's going through some problems that he doesn't kind of want to reveal to his family. And yeah, he it's actually, oh I'm reading it right now. He actually gets fired while on vacation. He doesn't want to tell anybody yeah. and he's kind of dealing with that stress. And then he gets obsessed with these teenage girls and oh, tries to follow okay. them around. It's really very... It's been de- it's been described by publications as like across kind of like between like Roman Polanski and David Lynch. It's very surreal and
0: yeah, because yeah, stuff it's, starts getting like, so, like surreal and like breaking apart and stuff. If I'm not mistaken, right?
2: yeah he starts to have these really weird disturbing hallucinations about rides and stuff like that oh
0: that's too bad i thought that was like the bulk of the movie was like that type of stuff Oh, that's unfortunate
2: it's it's in and out it's not it's not the majority of the premise there's a lot there's Uh, a couple other things to it this
0: whole time i thought it was like like oh my god disney's breaking in on us i didn't realize that that was like a nothing in it oh man
2: I don't it's know not, it's it's that not nothing it, it happens throughout it's just they're pretty limited I mean how many can you do? They do effects to certain aspects of rides to kind of give him this you know give this frightening effect that's kind of messing with his head Yeah, and there's just a couple other things going on at the same time but yeah it's just really impressive that it happened like it blew my mind when I found out about it I was like okay I need to watch this movie ASAP because it just blew my mind like you shot this at Disney parks without their consent and them knowing and you just put the movie out
1: and you didn't get kidnapped or something
2: right and he lived to tell about it it's unfortunate because i haven't heard anything of what happened to this guy afterwards like he hasn't made anything else and i'm really surprised mm-hmm. i i would figure everybody would be trying to offer him a contract at that point like hey yo you pulled off a movie at disney i'd be trying to sign him up for something real quick
0: well maybe they're not because he's been blacklisted he could have been blacklisted because of disney I mean, just because they're not mentioning oh, it doesn't true. mean that they don't have any pull. Yeah, that's true.
1: Or he could be making another stunt movie we're not supposed to know about yet.
0: This time it's in North Korea. I mean, I mean, who knows? Like, <laughs> he could do anything, that guy, clearly. I mean, it's, it's but it sounds like the niche is better than the end result. But I mean, how good could the end result be when there's, like, zero budget and, like, uh, no help? Because, like, how can you help, right? So...
2: Yeah, I mean, I think most of the money was spent paying on, you know, probably hotels and paying for the tickets for everybody. Because, I mean, he, he covered everybody's fare for the entire trip. That's pretty honest. And they went to both parks.
1: World and Land?
2: Yeah, if it's a mm-hmm. Disneyland,
0: yeah, it's only two. Because if it's World, then there's four. I was
1: thinking, like, California Adventure and things like that.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. But if it was if it was four, though, maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe he's expanded it to world. So now it's like, what's it called? The, the Hollywood Studios, because it used to be MGM or Animal Kingdom. Oh, my God. What if the T-Rexes come alive? Hey, that, that'll be cool.
1: Maybe he's making a knockoff Harry Potter at Universal Studios. Oh. that'd be
0: funny. <laughs> Which, given the disdain people have for J.K. Rowling right now, that could go over pretty well, I think.
1: It, it could be right for parody that the, the whole Harry Potter universe. Mm
2: hmm. You know, thinking about it, I almost wonder if this movie was just a one off and he had no intention of making any more films because he pretty much made it clear like this whole thing was pretty much something he needed to do because of, you know, feelings he had about his childhood in regards to this park.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, that's what a lot of films are. It's not necessarily somebody wanting to make a movie. It's that I'm like form a therapy the only way. Yeah, that's a movie's exactly. The only way that that they can convey how
2: they feel. It's so. also cool because it's all in black and white and I'm a sucker for black and white films.
1: Yeah, That just adds
2: to the like surreal the nature.
1: Oh, yeah. really? Because I would feel like making a dis- a movie at Disney in black and white is kind of a missed opportunity because there's so many beautiful things to film there. But
0: I feel like... I don't know if it's... be No, it actually wouldn't have been simply because of him because there are more than one film to try and break into Disneyland to film there. So one example I'm thinking of is The Florida Project where the the climactic scene actually is shot on iPhone in in Disney World. World specifically, because it's Florida.
1: And the whole point of the movie is about the difference between tourist Florida and real Florida.
0: Exactly. But then my pick actually came because I was thinking of your pick, James, but I was like, I haven't seen it, but there is one that I have seen, and it actually came before Mm-hmm. Have either of you seen Exit Through the Gift Shop?
1: No, but I really want to. I know
2: exactly what that is, but I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. So
0: Exit Through the Gift Shop is 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 my selection for this. Uh, for anybody listening at home who's wondering what, what my stupid selection was, if I felt the need, it's A Witcher's Tale. Uh, one of the stupidest but most enjoyable films I've ever seen because it's just so insane. Watch mm-hmm. it. That's all you need to know. But to go back to the serious thing, exit through the gift shop. So it's directed by Banksy, who to this day, nobody, not most people on Earth don't know exactly who he is. I do believe he's the guy for a massive attack, but that's probably not true. And it's about this, the the rise of this street artist named Mr. Brainwash, who basically has fallen off the map since. And that is part of the appeal of this movie. And I'll get into why. So, because neither of you have seen it, I don't want to spoil too much. It is. One I of already the know most... what happens.
2: Okay, I actually is... the reason I know about it is because um, a podcast I listened to, uh, "True Crime Obsessed," they covered this documentary. So they did a whole commentary about the entire thing. So I, I already know how it goes and how what happens. Oh,
0: that's too bad because it's it's such a good one. It, it really is one of the most like interesting documentaries I've ever seen, especially in, in recent memory. But uh, basically. Banksy, you know he's featured, but you know he's like you know hiding in the shadows, his voice has been roboticized. You still can't tell who it is, but uh, it's all about Mr. Brainwash. And you have other street artists here who are commenting like the guy who created the the Obama Hope poster and the the Andre the Giant obey. I, his name is, is escaping me right now. Who are like, why the hell is this guy, Mr. Brainwash, doing so well? And part of the reason why I included this film is because there is a portion shot in Disney World or Land, I don't remember, but basically, Banksy pulls a stunt at Disney World or Land, which already is crazy that he was able to do that, and lo and behold, Mr. Brainwash, from what I remember, Mr. Brainwash like basically takes the fall for it, and uh, outside of like the, the criminal process, everything else is 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 shot. So there's that. There's uh, I think it's even like a bonus uh, cut scene. I think where I miss or where where Banksy prints uh, illegal money as like a form of art, where it's like you know every dollar bill is like a different face, or he like edited Paris Hilton's album cover when it because like it was knew while, while he was, like, making this film and, like, put it back into a store. All of these crazy stunts being documented that somehow they're being documented. There's this camera crew and everything, but nobody noticed it happening. Like, there's a series of things like that that happen. And then it gets to the big paradox of the entire movie, which is, like, my selling point of this to this day, nobody can verify a hundred percent if this is even a real documentary or not. Like, if Mr. Brainwash is like a real story, if it's like this big fast stunt that um that Banksy pulled on us, and like you know, it got his friends involved. Nobody actually knows if this is real because the most I've seen him do is like he did this greatest hits album cover for for Madonna, like shortly after Exit Through the Gift Shop came out, and then. I've never heard of him since. Would you think, considering if you see the film, you he becomes big enough that you'd think more would happen. Like if you look at um, at Coons and his uh, his balloon animal artwork or whatever, or um, God, any other like big current day artist, like they don't just drop off like that, you know. So. It doesn't make much sense, but just so many things from the way that it was made to some of the things that happened within it to um, just the premise of it and how to this day people are still talking about it. Is this even a real documentary or not? I can't believe Exeter the Gift Shop exists, and I love it. I, I love the fact that we'll never
1: know. And yet it's generally accepted as a documentary. Like If it's nominated as such at the Oscars, I mean... Even with the doubt, it's still in that category.
0: It's still documents. We just don't know if Mr. Brainwash himself is real. Because, like, the stuff at Disney is real. All of the other street art and, and the documentation of it is real. It's, we just don't know about Mr. Brainwash. I mean, for God's sakes, his name is Mr. Brainwash. And this is a Banksy movie. So, like, you have to take so much with a grain of salt. But I love that.
2: It's much to Banksy's character, though. Yeah, the one thing I have appreciated about Banksy, he's almost like the MF Doom of the fine art world and like street art world because his existence operates on its own logic and defies literally anything and everything within their realm. Like when he had that painting for auction and then as soon as the auction got as soon as the auction ended, the buzzer happened and it started shredding the piece of art. Oh,
1: that was amazing.
2: I love that. The crazy part is, I think it sold for like a close... I, I think it was around the million dollar range. But someone was like, yeah, because of this, now it's probably worth double. And I'm just like, fine art is such a really bizarre happening in the world because of things like this. It's like shredded art could go for $2 million just of the premise of it happening alone.
0: Yeah, because now it's, it's not just fine art, it's performance art. So like, you know, I could only start to guess what would happen... Now that NFTs are taking off with Banksy, is he gonna partake in NFTs himself? Oh, he already has. Oh yeah, true. But uh, the other line of questioning is because of his you know creation of art and bailing or selling it for like haircuts and stuff, I believe that's what he said. He sells it for like weed and, and haircuts. would the people who get his artwork start trying to capitalize on it or seeing his murals? What they start to try and capitalize and make that into an NFT, where it's like, I saw it first, Banksy abandoned it because he made it a mural or whatever. But yes, yeah, so as you pointed out, James, he himself has already started.
2: Yeah, and it sold for 380 k in Ethereum.
0: Yep, that just shows like how forward-thinking he is, because clearly he was like on this already. If you're listening, Banksy, we would love to have you on the show. Uh, James here is a fantastic audio editor, so he will uh, edit the hell out of your voice. And yeah, let, let us know when new Massive Attack comes out as well, because we both, we both like Massive Attack a lot. Mezzanine is fantastic. But uh, moving on, before uh, Disney gets really mad at us, uh, for uh, two anti-Disney films, I love you, I swear. Uh, Rachel, does your film uh, take advantage of the Disney grounds or not?
1: No, I'm going to get off the Disney train completely, and we're going to go back to the time before they had even made a feature. 1935. And I'm going to go on a completely different tactic. So... I interpreted the question rather differently. Okay. In 1935, sorry, I've got to bring her up again. Catherine Hepburn was a huge star. She'd had a few early successes, and she was basically allowed to do whatever she wanted because she could bring anything in to the box office. And so she and George Cukor paired up once again, and they brought to the screen... Sylvia Scarlett. Have either of you seen it? No. I,
0: I know this because you've brought it up and I can't wait to hear it again, but I'd i never got around to watching it, no. But I do know this and I don't yeah. know the story.
1: So it's her first movie with Cary Grant. It's not a very good movie. Got to get that off the uh, right away. But it's weirdly subversive. So the premise is Hepburn and her father are con artists. And they're going to go from France to England, and they're going to go do a life of crime. But for various reasons, she disguises herself as a young man. And Hepburn makes a very handsome man. And from then on, it's wall-to-wall LGBT imagery. And in 1935, this really was not considered acceptable. (laughs) So... I'm not sure how this movie got made, because my theory is that she and George Cukor were bringing in so much money that nobody bothered to supervise them. Um, the Hayes Code was in full force. This would never have been allowed on screen, but they still managed to make this movie. And, you know, men hit on Hepburn when she's dressed as a guy. Women try to kiss her. In fact, one woman does kiss her. There's all this playing around with gender and with sexuality. And, you know, nowadays we wouldn't bat an eye on that, but in 1935? Yeah. They were not ready for it. The movie failed hard and it almost tanked both their careers. I think they even tried to bury the movie. And it was generally considered a rather iffy part of Hepburn's canon. Cary Grant's very good in it. That's basically it. But then it got rediscovered later on as this example of very, very early queer subtext in cinema. Well, it's not even really subtext. So the reason why I can't believe this movie got made is because At that time, none of that should ever have passed any kind of censorship. So I have no idea how they ever got away with it.
2: That's amazing.
1: Again, not a great movie, but very, very daring.
0: It's interesting that you say now we wouldn't bat an eye because it's not even just our current treatment of the LGBTQ plus community, which still has a ways to go, but it's much better than the 30s. But it's also the fact that it's commonly known that George Cukor himself was a part of that community. Mm -hmm. Although back back, in the day, that would have been...
1: Rather uh, open secret, I would say.
0: Of course, of course. But now it's like known that that he is a part of the community. So it would only make sense that he would try to express that in some sort of a way, especially if Hollywood was, you know, not allowing him to do so. And with the Hayes Code in place, you know, you brought up that it, that it, was you know well into effect, which is true. But that's probably even more of a reason why he probably would feel like the need to do this because it was still the early years where mm-hmm. it's like, why is this a thing? And the Hayes Code wasn't just sterile. It was also homophobic. It was also racist. It was also yeah, sexist. Yeah, and it
1: took quite a while to be implemented fully.
0: Exactly. But like I feel like so many of the initial things were, we don't want kids to see murder. We don't want kids to see rape. We also don't want them Mm -hmm. to see gay people or black people doing successful things. Like It just became very bigoted. And of course, that happened very quickly, all of the bigotry. So it only makes sense that it was like, wait a second, why not? And Lo and behold, somebody like George Cooker, who had a career before, certainly had one afterward. Hepburn took a bit of a hit, but of course she would end up having a career revitalization mm-hmm. in the 40s, so that wasn't really too bad. But you know, so they both were fine. But it only makes sense that he would be like, Screw it, let's just see what happens. Because if you're gonna be like this, I'm I wanna make a movie that I wanna make. So it's still it's it's yeah. so interesting.
1: And I, I just can't believe the stuff they they were able to put up there.
0: Yeah, still still for its time because I know there are LGBTQ plus films mm-hmm. in like the twenties and even like the tens. There was stuff with like uh, Alice Guy Blachet and Marlena Dietrich. Stuff. I think
1: had a same sex kiss in her early career. I think wasn't it Morocco. I want to say it was it was in that era, like thirty or thirty one.
0: Actually, and this could be our segue into the Oscar season. The very very first Best Picture winner mm-hmm. ever, Wings has a scene with some slight LGBTQ plus themes in it where I know James for sure you've not seen Wings. Definitely not. I don't recall, Rachel, have you seen it at all? Years ago. Do you know that really long dolly shot across all of the tables when yes. the main Oh yes,
1: that's the most famous and there's one couple in there that is probably a gay couple. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, that that's what it is. It basically that they are in a crowded space, in hiding, because they're in love, but they don't want the world to know this is the only way that they can show it. And you get that vibe in simply seconds, frames Mm -hmm. of film. What, What a detail. Like, what a detail. But of course, back then, you couldn't really say much more than that.
1: And I do have to say that a lot of my commentary about this is very US and Hollywood specific, and there were films being produced in other countries at the time that were a little bit more open.
0: Yeah, Hollywood, Yeah, <laughs> it's Hollywood. I mean, what more, what more can you say? But like, yeah, obviously another, um well, it also depends if you go to, like some nations mm-hmm. were even worse. They're still worse.
1: Let's leave it there.
0: Yeah, yeah, let, let's leave it there. But going back onto that Academy Awards train, you know, with Wings, uh, that was the very first one, along with Sunrise, the Song of, of Two Humans. Uh, the first year had two Best Picture winners, uh, which is never really dope. I wish they kind of kept doing that. Nope, they never did it again. Now this is the ninety-third year. Because the first year was was nineteen twenty-seven and nineteen twenty eight. They used to cover two the span of two years. So then 1928, 1929. I don't remember when they stopped. It was like the fourth or fifth one, I think, with cat It
1: was nineteen thirty three, I believe, was the first one.
0: Where they stopped doing that, right?
1: No, no, it was thirty four because I think it happened one night, it was the first one to win during that format.
0: Okay. So it was after Simmerin, it was after mm-hmm. Grand Hotel. Okay, that makes sense. Um, After Cavalcade. Cavalcade was probably the last one then.
1: Yep, and the reason I know that is because Hepburn won her first of four that year.
0: Hey, there you go. So it always comes back to Hepburn. I mean, she won four, so that's a a really good yardstick, especially since the last one was 1980s.
1: Yep, she won three of her Oscars after 60, which is a pretty good accomplishment in Hollywood. But anyway, back to to our Best Picture chat. It's
0: all delicious at home. We did our first uh, B-roll episode where we discussed the Academy Award nominees and what we thought of a couple of them, like, you know, just overall. It sounds like, because every year I watch every nominee, and I'm actually practically finished. I have one short. That's all I have left. One short, and if I had the screener for it, which I've asked, I've sent emails out, I would actually be finished. But I didn't expect both of you to try and take part as well, because this is a very audacious something or other that I've, I've prepared months for like trying to predict what will be nominated, just reviewing stuff throughout the year. So.
1: Well, you're just a bad influence. Andreas.
0: <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. How are we doing? What have we seen lately? How close to finishing are we? What is it looking like? Uh Rachel, let's go with you first.
1: So I have been going through I really started this in earnest last week. It's the first year I'm trying to see every single nominee instead of just the top few categories. And I'm finding the shorts are surprisingly easy. Um there's a lot of stuff streaming, which is good. I am now down to 16 features and three shorts left. And um, I'm doing two to three a night, sometimes more if I can cram more in. So it's going to be a busy time that I'm looking forward to it.
0: Cool. Well, without saying too much, because we'll save this for the Oscar roundtable, I guess we're going to try and do every category. All the smaller ones, we'll just do a breeze through, but we'll we'll go in depth with the bigger ones. Have there been any like surprise hits where it's like, if it wasn't for the Oscars, I would have never watched this, but I'm so glad that I did.
1: Hmm. I would say Collective, which is a documentary out of Romania. And it focuses on a disaster that happened there and a lot of its aftermath. It's a very, very intense movie. I had to take breaks from it. But it's nominated in both international film and documentary. Thoroughly deserves to be in both. And it's it's a wonderfully constructed film.
0: Yeah, it's the second time that that's ever happened. Uh, Honeyland last year was the first time. um, Wim Wenders' film, Pina, almost happened with that. It was a foreign film Mm -hmm. shortlist, I think, but it just didn't make it. It made it for the documentary, I think. It's one or the other. I don't remember. And Chile um, submitted
1: the same film for both this year, but it only made documentary.
0: Oh, for uh, the mole agent? Yeah. Um, I don't mean to be too rude. I'm glad it didn't make it for international film. It it was okay. Uh, I haven't seen that one yet. I I thought it was okay. I like the premise. I don't really care for the execution. Um, but uh, James, you started off. I think there was like fifty six nominees, shorts included. I think you started off having seen three. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Soul, Tenet, and The uh, Five Bloods.
2: The well, the three, the three that I had seen already were Mulan, Emma, and Soul.
0: Oh, weird. Okay, why did I think the Five Bloods? I, I I could have sworn you would have seen a Spike Lee joint by now. Yeah, I just a hadn't Spike gotten to it. A Spike Lee joint, James, it. it's
1: Spike Lee. It's two and a half hours long, Andreas. Nobody has that time. Which
0: was really good in a way because that's actually the longest nominee this year compared to last year. The Irishman is four hours. We usually have some three-hour stuff in there. Two and a half hours is the longest one. That's not bad.
2: Yeah, it's. I've still got quite a lot of features to go because I, I started – During the weekend, but what I did was I cataloged where I could find every single nominee and I also did their runtime. And instead of doing it by category, I did for I tried to do from shortest runtime to longest runtime, just because that would be okay, that would be a little bit easier to kind of power through them, but I decided to make some exceptions. Like I decided like last night, my wife and I watched uh, some of the animated ones. Like we watched Burrow, the animated short. We also watched Onward and the Sean, the sheep movie.
0: Oh, farmageddon. Uh, I
2: figured I was like, I'll watch the animated stuff with her. But for the most part, I've got the majority of the shorts down, except for two that are on streaming services. And then the, screeners but that's it for that i've seen most of the other shorts but as far as features besides the animated ones the only other one that i've seen is just, just trial of the chicago seven
0: okay so you've got pretty much everything
2: oh yeah but i mean i've got i've got a month i could do it that's true
0: yeah yesterday was or no it's today I think yeah, it's yep, today is right? the month mark
2: until exactly. showtime
0: so you've got an entire month so if you do one every day, okay, so you've done most of the shorts. So let's cut 15 off right off the bat. That's uh 41. Okay. So you cut off three. So that's uh roughly
1: 38. 38, 39,
0: roughly 38 movies. So you might have to double down some days. Oh, I'm trying to
2: figure out how much I, I actually have the list right in front of me. <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got, I've, I've got a quite lot. a lot. Let's see.
0: That's why I'm wondering like, are, it, it, that, that, okay. For me, like I've seen a lot of these last year, I tried to predict a lot, so it's like, okay, I think such and such is going to be nominated. I'll watch it in advance. Right. And okay, yeah, I
2: have I have, so, have thirty nine yeah. left that I have to do. You're right.
0: If you're going to make some sacrifices, can it, at least one of them be Hillbilly Elegy so you don't watch <laughs> it?
1: It's just not good.
0: No, and it's not. It. It's the like, worst Glenn Close one.
1: Was the best part of that movie, but even then.
0: It's the worst one. I've actually seen all except for one short, and I could guarantee Two Distant Strangers is not worse than Hillbilly Elegy. I can't. It can't be worse than that. If it is, I I can only question, but the shorts are usually not that bad to be nominated. Like, this is just terrible.
2: I will say there was one particular short that I almost wish was a movie. It was a full feature.
1: Which one was that? The Present. I love The Present. Uh, I could have watched another hour of that easily. Oh,
0: that was so nerve wracking. But wait until you get to White Eye, which,
1: mm-hmm.
0: oh, The Present would have been my favorite live action short. I still haven't seen Two Distant Strangers, but it would have been my favorite live action short. But then White Eye happened. White Eye is like, it's similar to The Present, but I think even slightly better.
1: I find it so strange that White Eye and The Present came along in the same year and were both nominated when they explore fairly similar themes. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And they're both from Israel too, I believe.
1: Mm-hmm. And and they involve a lot of the politics within Israel and I won't go into more detail than that, but it, I find it fascinating that they're up against each other.
0: I guess it was just a topical thing. Well, then again, we have um, that one documentary short, Do Not Split. Um, That's rough. And then uh, Be- Better Days, which uh, it's not really the same thing, but they both go into like a little bit. Okay, Do Not Split heavily, but like Better Days goes a little bit into, like, yeah. I guess, the, the Hong Kong struggle.
1: hmm
0: So um, Better Days is more like the bullying in, like, school system and, like, how that generates to like, the gangs in the real world. But there's a little bit of, like, you know, the Hong Kong struggle. So um, I guess these are just topical things. Uh, furthermore, we had The Man Who Sold His Skin and Minari, which both have the sexying of chickens like baby chicks being separated into like their, their different sexes, Mm -hmm. which that alone is the craziest coincidence. How there are two movies with have that in the same list of nominees in one year. Like, like how does that like, that's such a very specific thing.
1: And there are two movies that Andreas and I each watched yesterday that both have almost exactly the same line about, Oh (laughs) yeah. About immigration. (laughs)
0: Like, yes, I think except
1: there's only one word that's different in each sentence.
0: It wasn't even a word; it was a number. One yeah. was three, one was four, and it yeah, was like, it was "Damn!"
1: Basically, <laughs> the same line.
0: That <laughs> was crazy. So, yeah, th- that does happen. Um, I know this is uh, both your first time trying to watch every nominee, but that does actually happen. Where not to this extent, this is quite a few sim- similarities, but it happens where you just notice a lot of. Coincidences amongst the nominees. I mean, you're looking at fifty something odd works, so I mean that's bound to happen. That's that's half a that's half of a hundred, but at the same time,
1: or maybe watching all these movies is just breaking our brains.
2: Maybe they didn't have any similarities at all. <laughs> Honestly, I think the thing I'm thankful for is the yeah. fact that most, except for eight of them that I have to rent. Every single one of these is an option for me to stream.
1: Cries in Canadian. Because I mean, mainly, because
2: Canadian. I, I have access to Hulu and you guys don't. Which is so unfortunate because there's several of these that are on Hulu. Oh, stupid Hulu.
1: I know at least one is coming to Disney Plus fairly soon, so I should be able to get that here. Which one? Nomadland. Oh, yeah, because of stars. Yeah, because they have the new star service.
0: Oh, well, mm-hmm. that's going to do them very well because Nomadland is is having one hell of an off-season yeah. uh, for this awards race, and people are going to be, like, wanting to watch this thing. Dis- oh, man, stupid Disney, five steps ahead.
1: <laughs>
2: it's so weird that I have to sign up for Apple TV Plus just for two of these movies.
1: I did that, Greyhound
2: too. and Wolfwalkers.
1: Yeah, it's the dog channel, Greyhound Wolf Wolfwalkers.
2: Even though,
0: like, Greyhound has, like, nothing to do with actual dogs.
1: Well, it would be a better movie if it did. It would.
0: Can you imagine if, like, Tom Hanks was, like, an actual Greyhound on this on this boat, trying to attack U-boats. <laughs> oh, that, that would be something.
1: Honestly, before, when I just heard the title of this movie, I thought it was about Tom Hanks driving a Greyhound bus and becoming everybody's friend because that is absolutely what Tom Hanks would do. So.
0: Because I've done every nominee before I've seen Tom Hanks in a sound category before for, for Sully, which is about, you know, him as like a pilot, I think. And like, you know, the, it's like this trial about the the plane landing, which he you know, saved everybody's life. But like, you know, was it his fault? La di da. Was he a careless pilot? So when I saw, when I saw Greyhound, I thought also bus related things, but I thought more of like a speed thing, where it's like he's like the the bus driver, but like trying to stop it from like you know like this hijacking or like crashing into something like another disaster or something or other because it's in the sound category, so it's like it's not going to be like pleasantries. So, ah, uh, thank goodness. No, it's 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 better than I was expecting, but it's still not the greatest movie on earth. So. <laughs> But James, you're going to have to check that out.
2: Yeah, I've got a lot to check out. I also have the films for the next Smorgasbord episode that I have to watch still also.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> that we all do. So, yeah, we've got a lot on our plate, but...
1: And for anybody listening, you still have time to tune into Me and You and Everyone We Know, which is the film that we're all going to be watching before next week's Smorgasbord.
0: Yes. So, that is very exciting. I plan on doing that tomorrow. And... I've been dying to see that for ages. So, yes, please join us and and watch that. I believe it's on the Criterion channel. If that's the greatest point of access, is it anywhere else? I'm not sure. But please have a look and and join us for for when we have this discussion and we celebrate, you know, this fantastic month of celebrating women and female filmmakers. So that'll be great. But for now.
1: But since it's Miranda July, we really should have done it in July.
0: (laughs) I mean, we could always do something else that she did. Miranda July. Uh now 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 she's a March sister. It's, it's Miranda March for because just to make it work. But uh oh, we should have done Little Women. But uh, we we've seen that. I, I know you and I have seen that. James might have seen like at least one. I don't know.
1: Probably.
2: Uh, oh Little Women? Yeah, I saw the most recent
1: one. No one, one can okay, escape Little Women.
0: No. It's so good. But uh we have a lot on our plates, so let's uh Alleviate a little bit of it by uh, taking off a couple of movies for our uh, weekly recommendations. Let's uh, give you some. So that's stuff for you to watch. Uh, James, what is your recommendation this week? Has it anything to do with Disney?
2: No, but it is a film that another film that I'm surprised was made. Uh, I'm going to go with 1995's Kids, directed by Larry Clark.
0: Oh, oh yeah. yeah th- that is a that is a shocker as to how yeah, that
2: got made. Honestly... <laughs> Watching it so far away from when it was actually relevant, I probably would have been terrified seeing that movie if I was a teenager in the mid-90s, because it's almost traumatizing. Like If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to go into details or too many details, but just know it deals with teenagers in New York and the AIDS crisis.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, it's... And it stars a young
0: Rosario Dawson, I believe. And uh, Chloe Sevigny, am I wrong? Yes,
2: or? Rosario Dawson, Chloe Sevigny, and it is also the first screenplay written by Harmony Corinne.
0: Yes,
1: ah. this is
2: before Gummo.
0: Perfect. So, uh, Rachel, what is your recommendation?
1: Okay, mine is again a bit further back in time, and it stars Sofia Loren and Marcello Mastroani, and it is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And Yes! Yeah, it was Italy's nominee for the Oscars for Best International Film back in the day, and it actually won. And it's three short stories starring uh, Lorena and Mastroani as various couples, so you get to see very different aspects of them, and it really explores who they can portray. So one story is very sad, another one is kind of full of conflict, and one is quite funny. So it's a really good way of looking at these two actors from many different perspectives. It, that's why I would recommend it.
0: Actually, I'm gonna piggyback off of that entirely. I had something else, but like, I, I have a feeling you might have brought up sophia Loren because she's in The Life Ahead, which is an Oscar nominee for Best Original
1: Song, and, and which I think she probably just missed out on getting nominated for.
0: Yeah, she did an excellent job, and I'm a big fan of hers. And I think partially because I, I gave my mediocre three out of five review, I feel like I have to apologize in some way to one of the greats. Uh, uh, but whenever, it's weird, because when people think of Loren and, and Mastroianni, there are so many films they could pick. But for me, the one that sticks out the most, because I think it's the most underrated collaboration they ever did, is A Special Day. Which is mm-hmm. what they did in the, um, you know, like, like decades into like, their partnership. And um, wow, what a powerful film. The entire thing is shot in like a sepia tone um it, it, yeah, it takes place over an mm-hmm. entire day. It's, uh, you know, this this very, uh, you know, there's like this this dark cloud, figurative dark cloud over everything because it's the day that, that Mussolini and Hitler basically, like, connected and, like, you know, finally met and, you know, had all these discussions. And, and Loren is sitting at home. Her entire family is, like, extremely political and they, there's this divide. But she's, like, home alone now. And she meets Mastroianni, who um, is a closeted homosexual who is has uh, basically like banished from like the entire society and, and everything. So he's like stuck at home as well. And um, they basically just meet by chance on this day, uh, which is a very, again, a very like nervous, unsettling, not pleasant day, but they connect and, just two of the greatest of italian cinema just a special day is so criminally underrated and i don't know why enough people don't talk about it wonderful yes so if you haven't seen it you're gonna have to check all of these out for now that was the k-cut and we are going into the l-cut